Oh, Father, we come to you right now, and there's sometimes every once in a while a song catches a little glimpse of the amazingness of who you are. And Father, we acknowledge you with one voice. You are king, you're supreme, you're the ruler, and yet we're so thankful that we can call you dad. You're untouchable, but yet at the same time knowable. Thank you so much for your grace in our lives. Help us today. Give us grace as we open your word in your precious name. Amen. All right, have a seat. Um, if you need a Bible, there'll be guys uh, coming down with, uh, with Bibles. And uh, there's Greg coming down with them. So if you need one, grab one. If you don't have one, uh, feel free to take it home with you. Uh, it's, it's our gift to you. Oh, you need those. He's, he's right there. Everything's good. Awesome. All right, well, if you weren't here last Sunday night, we had a great night. We did the Lord's Supper together, and it was just, it was such a cool night hanging out together. It was fun to hear some of the stories of people confessing sin between one another before they showed up. And so, I, I just, anytime you slow down long enough to actually enjoy God and enjoy one another, that's a pretty good thing. And so, people have asked me questions, you know, like, are, are we going to still do Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings? Are we going to do it? How are we going to do this? And I would just put it kind of as a good, better, best thing. Um, I think the 10-minute addendum at the end of a service is not the best, but the church has done it. It's, it's good. Um, I think what we did last week would, would be something that would be better, but I still think the best place to celebrate the Lord's Supper is around people you know and love that you can interact with. And so it's kind of how we're going to look at the Lord's Supper, and so if you're nervous about it not being on Sunday morning, uh, just you know, that'll quell your nerves. Everything is all good. Jesus is still on his throne. Everything's great. But um, definitely wanted to make sure that I answered that. Also, uh, in a few weeks coming up, Good Friday, we'll have uh, some services where we'll get together as a church to celebrate. And I did say celebrate the death of Jesus. I feel like so often we want to leave Jesus on the cross. Just so you know, he's not there anymore. Right? And we learned that on Sunday, right? So that's what makes it actually Good Friday, is we never want to become irreverent about the day, but at the same time, He's not on the cross anymore. And uh, not only that, but then we're going to have a service out there in this parking lot on Sunday for 10 o'clock. If you want to bring people, it's a great time to bring unbelievers and just let them hang out with us. Let, us see the, let them see the church. And uh, it's kind of going to be fun for me. I get to speak to students every once in a while. It'll be a little opportunity for me to kind of speak evangelistically in that kind of way. So I'm kind of excited about that. But if you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going we're gonna to start a new series. And so... Uh, Kind of just to let you know a little bit about this series, what the point of it is, is to just understand that there's a place in the body for everybody. What we want you to get is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a place for you in this body to engage in what God's doing. And by the way, it doesn't mean just coming back to this campus. Actually, I believe it's when the church scatters, we also need to be these people that reminded that we have a place to serve within the body in our workplaces, whether we're going to school, whatever it is. In other words... As you're out there, you're an extension of who we are. That, that, that's this idea that but there's a place for everyone. Now, if you remember right with manhood and womanhood, I talked about my dancing ability, right? And I told you I won a competition. But I bet you didn't know I'm an accomplished musician. Did you know that? When I was six years old, my mom decided I was going to learn to play the piano. My mom's a phenomenal pianist. She's an organist even, and those don't hardly even exist anymore. Now she's going to think I'm calling her old, and she's going to watch this podcast. I didn't mean it that way, Mom. <laughs> I just love you. That's what it is. 
But she's just phenomenal. And so she wanted like one of her kids to be a musician. And so she started me. And the first place I went was to a convent with Sister Maria. Okay, I didn't grow up in Catholic school. Oh, my goodness. I still have scars on the back of my hands from Sister Maria. Get your wrists up. <laughs> and so with it, I learned to play piano. I spent eight years playing piano, and I actually won competitions. That's what I mean. You're looking at an accomplished pianist. Now, if you ask me to play chopsticks right now, I can't remember a thing. But my mom was still convinced, oh, we'll find you an instrument. And so I'm sitting there, and she goes, find a different instrument because you're going to play something. So I'm just sitting there thinking, like, what instrument am I going to play? And I thought, oh, I got it. I love jazz music. It's one something that I've always really loved. And so I thought, the cool people play the trumpet. Dizzy Gillespie, Miles Davis, even Satchmo. I mean, you just have these things where I'm like, oh, anybody plays trumpet, it's just cool. I could care less about music. I just wanted to be cool. So my mom signed me up for the band and the orchestra, and I showed up. And the other thing I found out is musicians are just as competitive as athletes. I got in there, and there's like first chair, second chair, and I'm like, no way, this is awesome. So again, I didn't care about the music, but dang it, I was going to be first chair. So I practiced like crazy, and I finally arrived at first chair, and I was so excited to get there. And then by the time I get to first chair, I realized that in the orchestra, trumpets aren't cool. It's the violins, the flutes. There's a pecking order inside of the band. Now, here's the point to this illustration. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is going to help us understand there's no such thing as a pecking order in the body of Christ. What he wants us to get is that every single person that is rescued out of sin has a place inside of the body. That God, when he calls them out, he invites them in. And to keep with our orchestra kind of analogy, everybody's invited to play in this orchestra that God is announcing who he is to the world. That he doesn't just rescue us to, to escape from hell. He rescues us to join this, this, this orchestra that announces God to the world, that displays him well. That the point of the church is that, that people might know and understand who God is, the work of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's going to go after. Now the problem in Corinth, if you remember right, is they kept missing the point. If you don't think they missed the point, they missed the point. But in it, he keeps getting into this idea of who's the greatest. Off the very beginning, you kind of see it as their argument through leaders. Is it the people of Paul? Is it the people of Cephas, Apollos, the, the Jesus party, the most spiritual party, of course? Who is the best amongst us? Who's the greatest? Am I greater chapter 5 because I'm the one that puts up with sin inside of the body? Or am I the one because, dang it, I'm hard on sin, man. I'm the one who's the greatest within the body. I don't like being wronged, and so I'm going to take you to court because I need to be vindicated. Chapter 7, is it better to have sex, not to have sex? Better to be married, not to, have, not to be married? Even in chapter 8, he just gets into this, this argument that's going on between them over people that enjoy freedom, don't enjoy freedom. Who's better? You can just see all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, this has been the argument. Even by the time you get to chapter 11, who's better, men or women? Don't answer that. But this is Paul's thing. You're asking the wrong question. 
The question they were asking is something that I think is built deep within us, is that am I significant? Do I matter? Every single one of you in here are asking that question in different forms and different ways throughout your life. When I sit down with somebody that's dying, oftentimes they'll be asking that question, was I significant? Did I live a life like I ought to? Suddenly, the, the amazing thing about death is all the money, power, prestige. Have you ever noticed that just goes right out the door? What they care about is, am I significant in regards to my marriage, my family? Did I actually live up to what I was supposed to? I see it with my little kids. My wife had the audacity to leave me alone this week with my children. And the whole time, it was my kids going, Daddy, watch, Daddy, Daddy, watch, Daddy, watch, watch, watch. They wanted to know, Daddy, do you see me? Now, inside of all of us, there's actually a redemptive reality to that. At the very end, don't all of us want to hear that statement, well done, good and faithful servant? It's something that in the garden, when there was this correct relationship between God and man, that idea of wanting to be known, that idea of of me and God, are, are we good, am I pleasing to him, didn't even exist because there was just a love between God and humanity before the fall, that there wasn't this longing for it. But the moment that we fell into this earth came just this clamoring, am I important? Do I matter? And in fact, even it's not so much even that I need to get to the top, but do I have the right people at the top that will, that will identify me inside of my existence? So in other words, for those of you that are Republican here, when a Republican's president, all is good. For those of you that are Democrats, which I'm guessing not probably anymore, there's not a whole lot of Democrats around conservative evangelicalism. But if there's somebody in here that's a Democrat, if there's a Democrat in office, and this was my grandparents, as soon as Jimmy Carter became president, all was good. Some of you are going, huh? Yeah. And even within Corinth, if we just had the right people in charge, I'll identify with them. Now what Paul's going to do, and it's so interesting, we're going to keep with our little music understanding of things. In chapters 12 through 14, it's almost like this beautiful symphony that Paul is orchestrating to help us understand what's most important when it comes to me and my spirituality. The first chapter, the 12, he looks at this from 1 through 11. He sets out what's going wrong. It's kind of the first movement. He's telling him what's going on within it. And it's kind of, if you can imagine somebody singing, Paul gets out there and there's something wrong amongst you. Yeah, I wasn't a singer. I was an accomplished musician, not a singer. 12 through 13, though, enters the melody. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. God is compiling this church to announce to the world, Jesus Christ is Lord. 14 through 31, it's Paul now in this, still this first movement, working back and forth through what the body of Christ looks like, the beauty of it, how God put it together, its significance, what it's announcing to the world. And at the very end, he tells him at the beginning, excuse me, at the very beginning, he says, you've got it messed up. And then at the very end, in verse 31, and if you've got your Bibles open, you can see this. He says, now let me show you a more excellent way. End of the first movement. Enter the second movement. Chapter 13, oh, the love chapter. We always read this at weddings, even though it has nothing to do with weddings. <laughs> chapter 13 is lyrical. It's gentle. You enter into it and you read things like, love is patient, love is kind. 
If I have not love, I'm just a noisy gong. If I have not love, I'm nothing. If I have not love, he just works through this idea that the mark of Jesus Christ's church is not how smart we are. It's not the crazy things we do. It's not the experiences we have. The mark of Jesus Christ's church is what will last forever, and that's love. That's what he's trying to get us to. Enter the third movement. Paul now grabs this contest that was happening between the church over tongues and prophecy and which one was greater. And I love what Paul does in chapter 14. Again, he says, you've missed the point. In certain situations and circumstances, prophecy is what's most important to be entered into this particular body. Tongues is not, but there's a place for that. There's a place for service. There's a place for all kinds of different things. And if you can just imagine for a second, the first orchestra I ever went to, my mom took me to, I still remember it was Beethoven's Ninth. And I went in thinking, this thing's going to be stupid. Blah, blah, blah. And you come in, and you, you know how it sounds when you first enter into the orchestra? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <sighs> Hour and 20 minutes. Come on, dude, you can make it. And then out walks the conductor. I'll remember this guy. I thought, man, he thinks he's all that. Who's he? And he's like, <laughs> turns around. <laughs> But man, you know when he grabs that baton, he lifted it up, and I just sat there within the silence, and everybody was just expectant. And all of a sudden, he kind of did this kind of a thing, and boom, out came the sound. And I still, I'm getting goosebumps right now, I still remember the sound that came out of there, just like, okay, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And the whole way through, that conductor's just guiding and leading. At one point, he looks over at the, at the flutes, and he's, he's sitting there doing stuff like this, but he's also doing this. And suddenly, there's this big section, which you have the timpani, and you've got the drums that are pounding, and the, suddenly the brass comes to life, and he's doing something like this. Is that inside of Jesus Christ's church, he's always looking at different aspects of the church and saying, now, you section, come alive. If we need mercy, then mercy come to life. If we need teaching, teaching now come to life, whatever we need chapter 14 his point is at the right time at the right place God's put the right people in his church to bring to life God's church so they might announce that Jesus Christ is Lord that's why everybody matters now when we get into verse 1 though this is their question that they must have written Paul they weren't concerned about Jesus Christ's church announcing him as Lord to them instead what they're concerned about is hey Paul who's most spiritual see that in verse one now concerning here's the next section he's already announced he's already kind of answered a few questions and now here's the next one he says concerning and in your bibles it says spiritual gifts that word it's tone pneumatico and it probably doesn't mean spiritual gifts like he's going to talk about in verse four when he uses the term charismata he's just probably saying now concerning these spiritual things that you've written me about let me try to answer him, because I don't want you to be ignorant, he says. Now, that term spiritual was their arguing phrase that they were going to use. You see it in chapter 2, verse 15, where he kind of tells them, here's what spiritual looks like in connection to the Holy Spirit. He talks about it in 3.1, where, where he's announcing the fact that I couldn't write to you certain things because you weren't at a point spiritually where I could write to you these particular things. In 14.37, he's going to say at the very end of it, those of you who think you're spiritual, 
Even in 14.1, when he announces it again, using the same word, pneumatica, he just wants them to understand. Now let me show you what spiritual really looks like. It was the big debate in the church. It exists still to this day. What is most spiritual? And what Paul's going to now try to answer working through these particular verses is that he's announcing to them, I don't want you to be ignorant, means that they are. And so I wanted, he's going to turn the corner on them. As I know you were asking me this particular question on what about these spiritual things and who's most spiritual and who's most important, but I'm going to twist your understanding on this and I'm going to tell you something about this spirituality that has nothing to do with what you're thinking because you're ignorant. And then in verse 2, he comes in and says this. Look at verse 2. I should probably open my Bible too. Verse 2, he says this. You know... That when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now what he's trying to tell them, and let me just put a big understanding over this, is that your problem with spirituality is you're using the world and how the world focuses on spirituality, and you're bringing it into the church. You're acting like it was when you were led away to those mute idols. Now, the whole thing that he's trying to help us to understand in this idolatry thing is it's probably drawing them from, to a Jewish person back into their wrong things that they did as a Jewish family. And we'll talk about the Gentiles here in a second. You know that all throughout the Old Testament, the problem that happened within the Jewish community is they kept adopting the people's religiosity and their spirituality and bringing it into the church. And Paul says, you've got to stop that. In fact, kind of beckoning back to the way they used to think, the Old Testament should have flooded in that every time you bring the world's religion, the world's spirituality into our particular church, into God's people, it's poisonous. It tears us apart. Probably would have beckoned back to the understanding even when, when you think about the kings that were a part of it is that they clamored for a king. They wanted somebody to be chief. This would have been huge within the Corinthians church. We want Paul. We want Apollos. We want Cephas. We want a king over us. We want somebody that we can look to. But God kept looking at them all throughout the book of Judges and even into their seeking for a king and saying, you don't want a king. I'm king. And still to this day, churches have a problem with wanting to have this main guy out in front that they can worship and gather themselves around and champion and say, everything's okay because Todd's here. He's got steady leadership. Everything's okay because Terry's here because he talks funny. Everything, oh, because he's such a gentle shepherd. Everything's okay here because Christian is such a great communicator. Everything is okay here because of who we have over us, missing the fact the king of the church is not people. The king of the church is Jesus, right? Wow, watch out, I'm going Baptist. I'm ready for that, amen, thank you. <laughs> Paul's just saying that's the way our world thinks. That's not how we think. Probably would have also spoke to the mystery religions. If you remember right, this idea of spirituality has been around for a long time. When you look back into the first kind of moment after the, after the garden in chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain and Abel were asking the question, who's most spiritual? Cost a guy his life. Cain was so distraught because he thought he was being so spiritual and coming to God. And when God looked down on it and said, no, Cain, that's not what I'm talking about, he killed his brother. 
And it worked its way all through the flood into the sons of Noah. Well, finally in chapter 11, we arrived there. And there's this group of people determined to be spiritual. But at the bottom of spirituality out in that world is not the worship of God. But actually, it says in chapter 11 that their spirituality was all about making a name for myself. And Paul's saying, don't bring that into my church. false religions that are out there that stem all the way back to Babel, when you bring them in, it's just poisonous. Probably within this church, a lot of what they were dealing with was tongues and the abuse and misuse of tongues. Just across the way from Corinth was the Oracle of Delphi. I don't know if you've ever heard of them in all your history classes, but the Oracle of Delphi was someone that sailors and different people would travel all around the world to come to. It was this woman that was known around the kingdom that you would go in and you would seek and she would prophesy and speak in tongues. It was a false religion. She would speak in tongues and what would happen is, is that you'd come in and you'd write down in this votive and you'd, uh, that's kind of a, a vow that you're going to make. You'd want to understand the prophecy. You'd hand it off to these eunuch priests. They would take it down to her and she would sit on this little tripod thing, steam coming up, and the more frenzied and crazy she became the more true the prophecy was and in fact the more she spoke in this thing called tongues and got crazy about it the more true it must be and probably even with Corinth by the time we get to chapter 14 Paul is saying you're bringing that false understanding of tongues into my church it's poisonous you're only harming it I think we do it in the church today. Maybe we're not a church that has maybe the tongues in the way that it, it goes out of control. But man, I'll tell you what. I think in conservative evangelicalism like us, we're just like the Israelites. We want a king. We want to know everything's okay at the man at top. We can't just let Jesus be king. We need a secondary Messiah to save us. A church that's right now in the United States had that. And there's churches just in shambles after the man fell. Why? Because their faith was not in Jesus like it should be. Their faith was in a man. Paul's saying, don't bring that in. Now, what he's going to do next in verse 3 is so important. He's going to give them a test now. How are, okay, Paul, great. Then how are we going to know what it is that's healthy? Paul, help us because we don't want to let those things in. So help us to understand it. And so he's going to write in verse 3. He's going to start off with this word of therefore. Now, based upon what I've said, therefore, I want you to now think. You were uninformed, and now I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, that first one, Jesus is accursed, could mean this. It could mean that there were groups of people that got so carried away in their frenzy and their experience of their worship service that out of their mouth blurts this reality that Jesus is accursed, and it would be based on this understanding that the humanity of Jesus was the cursed part. It was this part that we should curse. That God couldn't be touched by sin. God couldn't become fully man. That this manhood side of Jesus didn't matter. So in other words, what we would be saying is, is that Paul might be saying it's a doctrinal issue. That we don't have truth, which could definitely be there. I think that's part of the problem, is that we have to know truth. But I think there's something else going on here that's very important. And kind of archaeology has started to help us understand a little bit about what Paul's saying. That Jesus is accursed probably isn't the statement. It probably is more what would go on at this particular time is people, when they would worship their various gods, 
they would write out these votives. And on these votives were vows that they would make. And what they would want to happen is they would go to Zeus. And so they would say, Zeus, curse so-and-so. And they would put it in and they would pray over it and they would hope that, that Zeus would drop a curse on their friends. In fact, it even ended up on tombstones. Can you imagine that? Some tombstones, you know, here lies so-and-so. He was such a great guy. On their tombstone said, Zeus, curse Bob. Paul's point, they were calling on Jesus to curse other people. It was the extent of getting carried away. See, getting carried away kind of always starts off small. At first, we'll just look out there and go, oh, that Bob's a jerk. We don't really need him in our church. And the point of it that their idols were is that Satan has this crafty ability to start taking our small aspects of dealing with something and become bigger and bigger and bigger. And even potentially within the church, these parties of people, they were casting down, and the word is anathema, cursings on top of other people. And Paul is saying, that's not Jesus Christ's church. In fact, John says this statement in his first letter. He says, you cannot say you love God if you hate your what? Brother, it doesn't work. I think it's the first part of the great, or the second part of the great command, right? To love people. Paul's being simple here. Do you want to know what's really of the Spirit, Paul's saying? What's really of the Spirit is when you love people, simple. I think there's even a side of it where it could be even them looking out at the lost world that's around them and saying, you know what? Let them go to hell. Anathema them. As far as we're concerned, God has chosen me into this orchestra so the rest of them don't matter, missing the fact that if the church would have had that view, they wouldn't have been saved either. He's just letting them know how can the church of Jesus Christ not love one another radically. In fact, the rest of the book is all about this love that we have for one another. It announces to the world that who Jesus Christ is by how we engage with one another, how we care for one another. In other words, it is good that we get intelligent. It's good that we do various things. It's good that we have these experiences, but those aren't the best. The core of what makes up somebody as truly being spiritual, what Paul wants to say, is love. That's the core. But it's not just love for one another. Now he's going to come in and give us a second aspect of the test. The second aspect of the test, not only that we love one another now, but our love for God, the announcement that Jesus is Lord. At this time inside of Christianity, this was the great announcement to the world that when you came to know Jesus Christ, you were saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. He's the great one. He's the one that because I only love because he loved me first. He's the one that died on the cross that paid the penalty of all sin. He's the one that was ripped out of the grave that now all of a sudden because of his resurrection, all of us too one day will be resurrected. He is the one that we love above all things. Jesus is Lord. Our experiences don't matter. It is our loyalty to Jesus and love for him. That's what matters. It's the first command, love God. Love people. You want to know if you're spiritual or not, Paul says? How you do in loving people and how you do in loving God. Now he's not done. He then suddenly gives them a picture of how beautiful the church is. In verse 4, he pulls out this idea of spiritual gifts or charisma, charismata. 
He says, inside of the church, all of you are giving, given charisma. You're given charismata. Uh, we oftentimes have their term charismatic, which actually all of you in here, if you possess the Holy Spirit, whether you acknowledge it or not, you're a bunch of charismatics. Because you have the grace of God that's landed into your life. But he says, but there's only one Holy Spirit. His next word that he pulls out of there, but oh, but let's understand, there's many kinds of services, verse 5. It's our word diakonia, which we get our word deacon from. The way that it comes out is in service, in this love that serves one another radically. But there's only one Lord. And he says, and not only that, but there's multiple outcomes. But there's only one God and Father of all. He goes Trinitarian on them. To put it back in an orchestra understanding is he says, look, all of you have instruments. Every last one of you have various instruments that God has given to you to use within his orchestra. And as the Spirit of God hovers amongst you and operates amongst you, all these instruments are given musicianship to be able to accomplish their task. But not only that, but they get used in a certain way. They get used like Jesus used them. They get used for service, not for me. The gifts are not for me. The gifts are for other people. They're to be used on the behest of other people, but his point being in this whole thing is that there might be multiple instruments, but there is only one conductor. And when Jesus Christ stands over his church with the Spirit of God hovering over them, and he begins leading it, what's going to come out of there is the statement, Jesus is Lord. And there might be multiple sounds that come out of this, but there's only one composer. God and Father who started this whole thing, and he's going to end this whole thing. And we're not supposed to read any other sheet music than the one the Father's laid out for us. And when Jesus begins to look at his church, as we stare at him as the author and perfecter of our faith, what comes out of us is a proclamation to the world, Jesus is Lord. Now it could be that he's saying this sound is for God, and it is, I believe it is. This announcement that Jesus is Lord is definitely for him. It's for us. But you know what? By the time we get to heaven and we've eliminated the fallen nature of who we are, it's going to be loud and clear. Who do I think this noise is for? I think it's for a lost and a dying world. See, I think what happens inside of the church is we start to get enamored with ourselves. I just loved coming and doing the worship service today. The songs were so me. Weren't they good? My goodness. And Todd, I tell you what, he, I love when he uses Greek words. I don't even know what they mean. Wow. When we stand in front of God one day, there will be a loud proclamation that Jesus is Lord. But in the meantime, we have a community that has to hear it. Did a funeral Friday, which I walked away from it just as a reminder. People are still dying. People are still desperate for the message of Jesus Christ. People are desperate for a group of people. I mean, just think about it. When we go out into the world, doesn't it just sound like the warm up of a band? But to come into a place in which Jesus is Lord, it settles you into it. And you see Jesus, the great conductor, announcing truth to the world. I think our world is longing for this. And so what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is I believe there's a place for all of you inside of this body to operate 
both around one another as we gather, but also as we scatter. I think there's a place for you, and we're going to try to help you to find a place. If you've gotten comfortable sitting out there, you're going to probably be uncomfortable over the next few weeks, which is great. And even, I've said this before, and we've said it around Cornerstone, is that probably if all you want to do is come and sit on Sunday mornings, this isn't the church for you. We're designed by God to not sit and hear things. We're designed by God to join Him in what He's doing. And so with it, that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. But hear me out. The goal is still that Jesus is Lord. The goal the elders are pulling for, the goal that the pastoral staff is pulling for, is that this body will be this group that announces to the world, Jesus is Lord. Amen? All right. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word, the truth of your word. Father, would you do a work amongst us in this church? Continue to be one that we draw together. Would we radically love one another? Would we believe that knowledge is great, all these other things are good, but love is supreme? Would we radically love one another? And then, Father, also, would it not be missed that you are king? We only love because you first loved us. And so would you do a radical work of us understanding your love so that we might love others? Would you please do that? In your precious name we pray. Amen. If anybody wants to get baptized today, uh, we're going to be baptizing uh, somebody here in just a little bit, Chris. Is. So if you'd like to get baptized, today's a great day to get baptized. Maybe you just need prayer for whatever's going on in your life. We'd love to pray over you. Uh, maybe even today, some of you, you'd love to hear more about this gospel of Jesus as Lord. We'd love to talk to you. So we're going to sing some songs. If you want to come up afterwards, we'd love to have you. So.